and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Osher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have a conversation you did with LARB's editor-in-chief, Boris Draljuk, with the writer Claire Fuller about her newest novel, Unsettled Ground. That's right. It's really a fantastic book. It's a novel about two twins. They're in their 50s, living in the English countryside, and their mother passes away. Suddenly, they live together, and they have to reevaluate essentially everything they thought was real and true. And Claire was a wonderful guest, and we got to hear more about how she thinks about the idea of home and what home means to her, how she came up with the idea of these two twins living in the countryside. It's really a fantastic book, and I I hope listeners check it out. It's published by Tin House. If you'd like to join the virtual LAR book club conversation and discuss Claire Fuller's book, Unsettled Ground, with editor-in-chief Boris Draljuk, other LARB editors and members, become a member today. All levels are granted access to the book club discussion. And the Reckless Reader partnering store, The Collective Oakland, is offering members a 15% discount. And copies of the book will be mailed directly to book club members. That's right. And I will be joining... Boris for that discussion with members. And so I think it'll be a lot of fun. There's really a lot to talk about in this book. It's a very rich book, which doesn't happen all the time, as we both know. (laughs) You mean (laughs) with book club, when you guys choose uh, books for the book club, you don't always have so much to say. I'm going to speak for myself. And I no longer help choose the book. So it's always a nice surprise to me, which is really nice. But yeah, you know, sometimes with certain books, I just have a tough time thinking about things to say. And this one, I really didn't. There's really a lot to talk about. For now, everyone, with member or not, can listen to this conversation with Claire Fuller about her novel, Unsettled Ground. Great. Thanks, Kate. Greetings, LARB book clubbers and Radio Hour listeners. I'm Boris Drelouk, LARB's editor-in-chief, and I'm joined by the inimitable Medea Ocher, our managing editor emerita and co-host of the Radio Hour. Today, our guest is Claire Fuller. Born in Oxfordshire, she is the author of four novels, the Desmond Elliott Prize-winning debut, Our Endless Number of Days, as well as Swimming Lessons, Bitter Orange, and her latest, the gripping, intensely evocative, and often unsettling Unsettled Ground, which is a finalist for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Welcome, Claire, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Claire, for listeners who are not familiar with the book, I'll just give a brief plot rundown, which is that the book begins with the death of a woman named Dot and her two children, their 51-year-old twins who have lived with her in a cottage on farmland in England, are left alone. They have each other. And essentially, the rest of the book is them figuring out some pieces of their lives that they had not been able to fit before and also figuring out how to move past the death of their mother into what life might look like. And so I want to start by asking what brought you to this story and what brought you to the story of Jeannie and Julius? It started with the place, really. So without giving too much more away, that was a really great summary, by the way. There is a point in the book where Jeannie and Julius end up living in a caravan in the woods, which I think for US listeners is a camper trailer. 
a vehicle that doesn't have its own engine it's towed behind another behind a car or something and you go on holiday in it and there are lots of these around the English countryside unfortunately that have been well they're beyond use really so people kind of dump them or they leave them somewhere for agricultural workers to live in and sometimes they just really get abandoned and my son came across one in the woods quite near to where I live in Winchester in Hampshire. And he knows that I like weird places, places that have some atmosphere that maybe somebody has left and once lived there and have been abandoned. And so he said, Mom, you've got to come out and see this caravan in the woods. It's really horrible, but you'll love it. <laughs> and so we went out there and he was absolutely right. It was really atmospheric probably a smaller caravan than the one in unsettled ground, but it had obviously been there for many years and somebody had once lived in it, but wasn't any longer. It had been vandalized. The windows were smashed. There was a few bits and pieces of belongings left behind. It was really smelly and a very kind of sad place, really. But it just made me start thinking, who would have lived here? And how did they manage without any electricity or any sanitation or any running water? What was their life like that took them to this place? And after they left, what was their life like then? I was just really curious about who might have inhabited it. And Jeannie kind of appeared slowly <laughs> through the mist, if you like, as somebody who ends up there. So that's a kind of the somewhere around the middle of the book. So, but I went back in time to find out more about who she was and actually find out more about her mother as a way of discovering what the story was. Thank you for that. I think atmospheric is just the right word for this entire novel, which really radiates an atmosphere that's rooted both in the characters and in the scenes you describe. One thing that came to mind is I think that the urban-rural divide in England, although still very much real, is dissolving a bit, you know, the technology and modern life are invading the countryside, which had meant so much to its inhabitants. I wonder whether there's a bit of nostalgia in your depiction of Jeannie and Dot and the family and their attachment to this antiquated way of life. Kind of nostalgia. I was, what I was really trying to show was how I think lots of English people have a nostalgia for the countryside and for how idyllic it seems and how we all kind of have a longing to move back there. Not that we necessarily came from there, but it would provide us with a better life. We still have that feeling. So it's sometimes it's a nostalgia that we don't even own. It's one that is kind of collective somehow. And you can drive through these absolutely beautiful villages in England with, you know, windy streets and thatched cottages, and they all look absolutely lovely. But the reality is, it's not always like that. You know, there are still people who struggle to pay the rent, who don't have transportation, who don't have access to technology. So I did kind of want to look at that and also what happens as these villages become perhaps more gentrified and become places where it is very difficult to live if you don't have very much money. So yeah, a kind of nostalgia, you're right, but maybe a fake one. Yes, yes. Well, I think you explore that, the false nostalgia, very effectively. Yeah, and we should say that, you know, so Jeannie and Julius and their mother really live off the land that is around 
Julius does half odd work and he works at a dairy farm and various other sort of small jobs. But most of the food that they eat, they gather from their garden. At least Jeannie does with her mother. And they have chickens and Jeannie sells some of the ways in which she they make the small bit of cash that they might have. There's no bank accounts. There's no sort of Venmo, <laughs> no PayPal. There's a tin. There's a tin in which they keep their cash. And she sells vegetable to sort of this fancy deli in town, which is marketing off of precisely the nostalgia that I think that we're talking about, right? That is sort of enacting a bourgeois version of that nostalgia and selling it for a premium. And Jeannie and Julius are really living it. They're actually living the hardship that is earning your keep by your, essentially just by the work of your own two hands. So there's an interesting dichotomy in in a sense that Jeannie and Julius are sort of like lost to time kind of, that they've been left behind partly through their poverty, but also partly because of their mom. And so there's a sense that nostalgia can't even apply to them. There's no time has passed. (laughs) You're absolutely right. It is still like they're living in the 50s or the 60s and time has kind of passed them by. I think you're right. Yeah. And one of the interesting things in the book is this relationship between the reality of things and what seems to be the reality. And I was wondering how you thought about that when you approached this book, because very much of what is perceived as what has happened to Jeannie and Julius isn't actually the truth, isn't actually what has happened. And I don't think that's giving much away. I mean, there's readers will just have to find out what that is. But of how you approached revealing the things that go on in the book, but also essentially how you thought about that divide between what is real and what is imagined or what is enacted by other people. I think it was really interesting to explore that reality and perceptions of reality because you're right, you know, the kind of false nostalgia draws into that as well. But because I don't really, I don't plan when I write. So I just started with Dot's death. What's going to happen when this woman is discovered dead on her floor by her daughter and her son? And what are the consequences of that? So often I'm, I am kind of exploring things as I'm writing, but then obviously lots of the plot and characterization and themes and things get firmed up when I revise and when I edit, which normally, you know, takes six months to a year after I finish the first draft. So lots of those things, sometimes they just kind of come organically and somebody says or does something that I have no idea what that means. But I still leave it in because I hope that I will discover what that means by the end of the book, by the time I've got to the end of the first draft. And often that is what happens, you know, by the time I get there, I think, oh, so that's what this book is about. I don't know if, you know, how many people write that way. I think there's all sorts of ways to write, but that's really how I do it. So sometimes the surprises, if you like, or the things that Jeannie and Julius or Jeannie particularly discover, I was discovering along the way with her, certainly in the first draft. It was important to me that the surprises and the reveals and what Jeannie discovers is the truth was something for Jeannie to discover. And they they weren't really there for the reader to be surprised or for them to be reveals or twists or shocks for the reader. I think most readers who read it closely will realize all the things that Jeannie discovers well before Jeannie discovers them. So it's for me, I was trying to create the tension in the reader about 
when will Jeannie realise these things? Will she ever realise these things and how will she cope with them? Because if you read it very closely, in fact, as Dot, the mother, dies in the first chapter and lots of things go through her head, all the things that happen to Jeannie are actually mentioned. So I don't know that you would really get that always on a first read, but you'd definitely get that on a second read. So I kind of almost wanted to give everything away to the reader if they read closely enough. So that was quite fun to play with. It was, you know, that was done very deliberately. It was very rewarding as a reading experience because we're so close to the minds of the characters in this third-person narration that we sometimes are blinkered to the things that are right in front of our eyes in the surrounding narrative. And one decision, that one structural decision that you made that I felt worked very well is the putting everything in the present tense. It really pushes us into the story and takes us along for the journey. We almost don't have time to pause to reflect on what we've heard and learned. Can you tell us about that? What other things do you consider <laughs> before you start in on a narrative? Well, in a way, I don't decide those things. I do just start writing. And sometimes if if it just feels like, oh, hard work and I'm, you know, wading through treacle, then I will try a different tense or a different point of view to see whether that kind of frees things up. So it's not always completely conscious. It's just what seems to work. But then obviously, you know, a little bit later on as I'm writing, I do decide, is this right? Is this right for the story? So the present tense felt very right, firstly, because it is just mostly one kind of chronological narrative, one time, whereas all my other novels have different timelines that interweave and cross over. So the fact that I just wanted kind of one story, although there are flashbacks and memories and things, but they're not a big part of the story. So the present tense seemed right for that. But also the fact that I wanted that kind of tension, uh, what's going to happen next? This has happened. Oh my God, what's, you know, this is going to happen. So the present tense would help, I hoped, to create some momentum and some tension that one thing after another is happening to these twins and they don't even have time to kind of catch their breath before the next thing happens. But also the present tense somehow seemed to work because Jeannie can barely read or write. And if it was the past tense, I know you can just, obviously you can just tell a story. There doesn't have to be anyone actually telling that story a book can just be. But because she struggles to read and write, if it was in the past tense, it would almost be like, is she writing this down? Well, she can't do that. So how is this story being told? So for it to be told in the present tense somehow worked with those challenges that she was facing as well. I absolutely agree. And I also feel that their mentality is very much of the present tense. They, as we've already said, do not pay attention to the passage of time. They act in the moment. And that's precisely what I think the tense communicates. So after Dot dies, their mother, she is described at awake as a good woman. Or is it Rawson who comes and describes her as a good woman? Yeah, quite a few people do describe her yeah. as a good woman. So after her passing, she's described that way. And there's a moment in which... Jeannie is herself described as a good woman, or she fears being described that way, or as a good person. And I wanted to ask you how you thought about what that means, and what is a good woman, and why it evokes fear in Jeannie, and does it evoke, sort of does it evoke fear in you? 
<laughs> I have to say, I can't remember that phrase, but it's, I trust you that it's there because you will have read it more recently than me. But really with the kind of idea of Dot being described as a good woman by various people, I think by the doctor and by other people that she has come across, the kind of market stall holder, I think, people like that. What I was really trying to do is that this is how the children have seen her as well, her adult children, as a good woman, someone who has cared for them, looked after them. Okay, they've never had very much, but they have been relatively content. After someone dies, it seems to me that everyone kind of carries on saying the same thing about that person and often making it even more positive after they've died. You know, nobody really publicly kind of says, well, I they were awful and they did this and they did that. But I wanted to show that the twins are also thinking that for a while. And then they kind of start discovering things about Dot and how she lived and and basically the lies that she told them for whatever reasons. And they, I'm not sure they come to see her as a bad woman, but they come to see her as much more complex than just a good woman. And so I think perhaps... If Jeannie says it, and if I think what a, it's not that a good woman is bad, it's that it simplifies somebody. That's kind of all they become. Whereas I hope that all these characters, Dot included, Dot especially, is a lot more complex than that, as readers discover throughout the book. She's not just a good woman. And in fact, it's kind of up for discussion was she good at all? You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been listening to a special LARB book club conversation with the novelist Claire Fuller about her newest book, Unsettled Ground. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Kate Zambrino on the line with us today. Kate's new book is called To Write As If Already Dead, and Kate is going to give us a book recommendation. Kate, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend How to Wash a Heart by Bono Kapil. My most recent book, The Kabir Study, is dedicated to Bono Kapil, and I think very inspired by the spirit and energy of her work. But this is her first full-length collection of poetry that was published in the UK. It's still available in the US. It was published by Liverpool University Press, and she won the T.S. Eliot Prize in the UK for it. I love Banu's work. I think Banu is one of the most urgent, serious, and intensely prankish writers of the post-colonial and precarity and immigration writing today. And But this book is incredibly devastating. It draws from material she wrote for a performance she gave at the ICA in London around the Kathy Acker exhibit, um, in which her and her sister, Rohini Kapil, staged a washing of hearts that in some way was inspired by Ligia Pape's performance piece, Good Blood. But this is a piece where the speaker is an artist and is an immigrant, is a person of color, and has been invited to be a guest in the home of a white host family like a liberal white host family with an adopted daughter of color. That's kind of the loose frame of it. But within this is a devastating critique of professional precarity, of 
white liberal spaces. I think drawing a lot on Kapil's experience teaching at colleges and universities in the United States. And it's devastating. It's hilarious. It's a writing of the body. It's both autobiographical and biographical. I say every one of Banu's works is my favorite of her works, but I really think this one might be. But the line that people are quoting quite a lot, which is so devastating in the intimacy of, you know, the trauma of this is, it's exhausting to be a guest in somebody's house forever. Mm -hmm. I think that's just, yeah, it's really, this is such an important work as we think about, you know, hostility against immigrants and migrants and just the sense of the appearance of anti-racism in these white liberal spaces, but the true intimacy of like aggression and how that is experienced within the home and within these spaces. That sounds fantastic. Thanks so much, Kate. Will you tell us the name of the author again and the title? The author is Bonnie Capil, and the title is How to Wash a Heart. We've been talking to Kate Zambrino. Her latest book is called To Write As If Already Dead. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Claire Fuller, author of Unsettled Ground. To go back to where we started, that original inspiring scene of the of the caravan in, in the middle of the woods, it was hard for me to read this novel in Los Angeles, which, which has a tremendous problem with homelessness, and not think of the experience of those uh, who are without a home. I wonder what your thoughts are on that situation in, in the UK around you, whether that was something that you consciously uh, wanted to tackle, uh, to, to um, really give thought to what it must be like to um, lose one's home. Again, it wasn't something I thought, this is, this is something I want to tackle. But once I realized that happens to Jeannie and, and she becomes homeless and, you know, after the caravan, things get even worse for her. I started researching homelessness and, and rural poverty in the UK and kind of discovering that it wasn't certainly homelessness and poverty in rural areas. It just doesn't seem to appear in fiction that's set in in England. And so it became really important to me to look at how that might be expressed in fiction. But without, I really, really didn't want to have an agenda in this novel. I wanted the characters to just behave, to just be once I'd decided, once I'd worked out what kind of people they were and how they would react in certain circumstances to kind of let them do it without making judgment about their decisions. So, you know, Jeannie's homelessness is kind of forced upon her. Well, it is it is forced upon her. I'm sure, you know, she wouldn't choose to have been in that situation, but I think she makes some very kind of rational decisions based on on her circumstances. And so there wasn't a particular message I wanted to get across, but it has been really interesting to see the reaction, especially English and UK readers who see homeless people on a day-to-day basis or might see somebody, you know, eating some food that they picked up out of a bin 
and it's it is still really hard to walk past that person without kind of being a little bit disgusted you know i'm sure i've done that too and I wanted to try and get readers to think about where that person might have come from, what their circumstances are, why they're having to do that. And from the feedback that I've had from lots of readers, I I think they do seem to be feeling that and to be reconsidering the homeless people that they see around them. I'm curious about your personal relationship to home. What are the circumstances in which you grew up and and what's your relationship to home now? Home is has always been really important to me to have kind of some stable base. It's not really that I didn't have it in my childhood. I had three houses up until the age of 10 when my parents got divorced. And then I lived with my mother up until I was 18. But then things did become very difficult between us. And she made me leave home. I didn't really have any choice about it and I didn't really have anywhere to go. It wasn't quite that I was homeless. You know, I had enough money to rent somewhere, but I was 18 and suddenly kind of on my own without somewhere to keep all my belongings. And so kind of everything did reduce down to, you know, one suitcase really. I'm not at all saying that I was homeless, but things were difficult for a number of years. And so finding that stability and having what I would call a home is really important to me and still is now. I'm very lucky to live in a lovely house now and I've lived here for 20 years or so. And I have two children who have recently left home and providing somewhere for them to come back to that they can still call home even though they've left is really important to me. An interesting question I've not been asked before, but happy happy to answer it. Did you mend the relationship with your mother? I did. Or, yeah, or did. I did. There was about four years where we didn't see each other, speak to each other. And now we're really close. And she is she's quite an amazing woman now that I, I I guess having had 18-year-olds, I do understand a little bit more about her point of view from when I was Mm. 18. And perhaps I've kind of forgiven her some of those things. But now she talks to strangers in the street and tells them that her daughter is a writer and hands out postcards. (laughs) (laughs) So that, you know, we've mended all those bridges. (laughs) That's really lovely. Uh, May I ask then also, uh, uh, since we're on the subject of your past, how you came to writing? I know it it wasn't a direct route. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what finally brought you to the page? Yeah, I didn't start writing creative fiction until I was 40, so uh, 14 years ago. I've always been a a reader, always read and read and read lots and lots of books and used libraries an awful lot. And it never occurred to me to be a writer. I just thought that writers were very different to me. They were unusual people, perhaps people better educated than me. I'm not sure. It just never, never really occurred to me. And then my first degree was in sculpture. So I did art for a long time. And then I ran a small marketing company, which specialized in writing, but it was technology writing. It wasn't really anything very creative. 
And then I was doing some art projects with my husband and they were kind of public, almost performance art projects, things that were really out of my comfort. So things like we had to have a one person demonstration. So my husband made a placard that said less driving, more walking and went and stood in the middle of a four lane highway while I took photographs and made all the cars stop. You know, and it was terrifying. Why are we doing this? Well, it wasn't just a demonstration. We, it was about kind of taking the photographs of doing these things. And, and then we would just run away because we were so, so scared about what we were doing. But what I really discovered that I liked was the, first of all, being out of my comfort zone and then the feeling of achievement of having done something difficult that I didn't really like doing. So I was looking around for more ideas to, to, to get that feeling back. And I discovered in my local library a short story slam, which was an event where anybody could sign up to write a short story that you had to read it out to the paying audience and the audience then voted on their winner. And if you won, you've got a share of the doors takings. So now I hadn't written for would have been 25 years. You know, I did a tiny bit of creative writing at school when I was 16, but then nothing until I was 40. So I I can't even remember what this short story was, but I wrote it and I read it out to this audience and I it would have been very bad and the reading would have been very bad. But after maybe two years, I did finally write a story which they voted as the winner, which was, you know, Great. I still really don't enjoy writing. I like having written. And so that feeling still remains with me. But then I went on to do an MA in creative writing and I wrote Our Endless Number Days on that course and then kind of carried on from there, really. It's interesting to hear you tell that story because in this book, Jeannie and Julius, they're musicians, as was Dot, their mother, as was their father, not classically trained, but trained at home from a young age and and clearly quite remarkable musicians in terms of how they play with each other and the, the sort of their, maybe the best way to describe it would be like extremely intimate relationship with music and the way it soothes them and, and comforts them in, in particularly difficult times. But there's a point in which they perform um, they perform twice, actually. And it's funny to hear you talk about your performance of your writing because Jeannie is really uncomfortable at first. She doesn't want to do it, but she's also quite remarkable at it. And it's funny to also hear you say that you were doing performance art because writing is almost the opposite of that, right? Where you're literally alone in a room, nobody's watching you, nobody cares. It's the most boring thing to see in the world. So I guess my question is, uh, what's there seems to be some tension between art for its own sake, the writing the, and the music for its own sake and for just doing it for yourself and art as a kind of performance. And I wonder how you feel about those two things. If one tugs at you a little bit more, it seems like there's some kind of, there is like a lure or a temptation with, this, with the performing part of it that perhaps you are also sort of struggling with or struggling might be too too bold of a term but uh, thinking about <laughs> yeah I think it is really odd that I think I mean maybe writing fiction writing novels is the only art form where where you have that weirdness going on because lots of other art forms are collaborative aren't they mm -hmm. or or they kind of are designed to 
finally at least be public. You know, if you think about writing plays or whatever, it's, they, they will be performed, but books are always in solitary or supposed to be. But I am definitely pulled in both directions. So, you know, there was a long, long, long time ago, a point at which I thought I, you know, would quite like maybe to be an actor. Hmm. I didn't didn't pursue that at all, but I can, I kind of enjoy the public performance of writing. And I've really missed that over the past year, uh, year and a half, without any face-to-face literary events. I definitely wouldn't want to do that all the time because I also like being in this room writing without anybody seeing me and, you know, my slippers on my feet and my desk a mess. And I, I like being able to have both of those. But sometimes I do have to be persuaded in the same way that Jeannie is persuaded. So often somebody will ask me to do something, some you know, a, a performance or, or go to an event or whatever. And I always say yes, because I just think, well, they might never ask me again. I think it's that's probably to do with the fact that I've come to writing so late that I just appreciate it all so much, mm. all the opportunities. So I always say yes. And then often the day before or the hour before or the minute before, I'm thinking, why did I say yes? <laughs> and then I go and do it. Uh, and I always, always love it. And then I always love that feeling afterwards of having done it. And yet it still doesn't really teach me that an hour before I, I should be thinking, this will be fine. My husband's always saying, it's, it's always fine, always Claire, fine. isn't it? It's always fine. But I don't want to do it. So, so um, yeah, Gina's experience with playing the music in the pub is so exactly the same as that. She really doesn't want to do it. Um, and then she does it and she loves it. But, she, I, don't th- but I don't think she wants to do it again she would have to really be persuaded to do it again. Um, so that's quite interesting. Well, I hope you didn't have cold feet before this because you're doing better than fine. <laughs> and that's a very interesting point that uh, having come to writing a bit later, you take every opportunity. I wonder whether, uh, and you've mentioned that that writing itself isn't the pleasure, but getting it written is. I wonder how you start on new projects. Uh, you gave us the story of how this book, the seed for this book, you know what's next uh, for you? How do you how do you get yourself to uh, to start start that ball rolling? Normally, it's it's not a problem to have it start because I just have so many ideas that are kind of talking in my ear, saying "write me, write me," and I have it's about deciding which one and then kind of pursuing that and trying to not listen to any of the others that are saying, write me, write me. You know, I need, I know I need to finish something. And so far I've been, you know, very good at that. I've finished four novels and four novels have been published. And normally my routine is that I try really hard to finish the first draft of the next book before the previous one is published because the publishing process is turns very slowly often it's 18 months or so bef- you know that that kind of gap and i have managed that with all the other books but not with the one i'm writing now i'm not i'm not quite sure why i'm i'm nearly there but and and the seed comes often still from a place so with the one i'm writing now it wasn't a place i actually visited but it was something somebody told me about who back in 
it must have happened to him in about 2019. He, this guy who's a friend of my son's, signed up for a flu clinic where you go into a unit and you're given a virus and you have to stay in a room for two weeks and you're given a vaccine and you know they test you and see how it works and I just thought oh that sounds really really interesting and that was back in 2019 and and then you know the all that <laughs> yeah, G- G- I wonder why you haven't finished this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was there was a, a number of months where I thought, should I should I carry on with this? Is this is this right? But actually, it it talks about all sorts of other things. It's really I think about um, people being in an enclosed space, and it's about medicine, and it's about octopuses. So. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see whether that gets finished. I, I hope it's nearly there, so I hope it does. But At Reading this novel, it's not that I could have put a finger on any work of fiction as a, a point of inspiration, but I did have, there were shadows of Thomas Hardy, there were shadows of D.H. Lawrence, and I just wonder whether you do look to the masters of the past for inspiration or guidance as you launch on a new project. Not massively. I certainly ne- don't really ever go back and read something that you know might help me with the project that I'm starting. That, having said that, I am a huge fan of Thomas Hardy, but that's just kind of coincidentally, you know, if there's some influence, then it, it's not deliberate, but I'm very happy for it to be there. And I can see that, you know, his subjects around Wessex, which is basically kind of where I live and where this book is set, and rural poverty and struggle all those kinds of things. So I'm, you know, if people mention Thomas Hardy and Unsettled Ground, then I'm I'm very flattered. I do sometimes when I'm writing, try and find perhaps more contemporary fiction that reflects what I'm writing in its, perhaps in its subject matter, more than style or anything like that. And when I was casting around for fiction that dealt with rural poverty, as I think I said earlier, I really struggled to find anything that that dealt with it. With Unsettled Ground, I think there really weren't any books that I was reading deliberately alongside. But I mean, there are all sorts of writers that I love and I you know, maybe they have an influence, but it's but it's not necessarily deliberate. So um, people like Shirley Jackson for her for her kind of darkness and her weirdness. People like um, David Van, who's American author living in England, whose subjects are often very bleak. And although I like to think there's perhaps some hope in Unsettled Ground, it is a very sad story. Ah, there's lo- there's probably loads and loads of influences. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Strout, even Richard Ford, you know, I like his kind of directness. Yeah, all sorts of people. I think a lot of that is evident. Uh, it's And again, not directly. It's just the, in, the, in the same uh, general area. Thank you so much, Claire. This was lovely. And the book is, is really lovely. And um, congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you, Claire. We've been listening to a large book club conversation with Claire Fuller author of Unsettled Ground. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. 
Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.